All right. Last time when we were together, we, we kind of laid out the idea, the concept, that the Bible was authoritative really from the time the apostles set down the pen. It was functioning in the church that way. It was being spread around the church that way from uh, person to person, church to church, being copied, being sent around. And like we see... Even in our world today, if we think about it, when is it that they put up a do not swim sign? They never put up a do not swim until somebody gets hurt swimming. And then they put up a sign, don't swim here, so that's probably a bad idea. Or don't climb here, or don't fish here, or whatever the things are. You know, as things become issues, things get more clarified. That's just how mankind works. And I think really it's one of the things we see as we take a look at church history and we take a look at some of the events that took place. So tonight, um, page 13 of your notes, we're going to start with heresies during the same period of time. So these are heresies that deal with the apostolic period. You guys remember how we started taking a look at the apostolic period uh, uh, basically from 150 roughly to 500 so the generations immediately following the apostles, what's going on in the church, what's happening in the church. And just like, as I talked earlier, the no swimming sign, this is what brings the church to positions of clarity on doctrine. So it doesn't mean that all of a sudden the Bible springs into existence. We're, we won't even see that tonight. But the, but the idea that the Bible was what was functioning to deal with the heresies that came up. And those heresies that came up helped define things all the way through church history. Next time we'll take a look at the Middle Ages and then after that the Reformed Era. And the changes that take place through that time. And it's the same thing as, as issues arise, when they're not a problem, nobody's addressing it. Does that make sense? And then when it becomes a problem, people start to address it. So the first guy we're going to look at is Marcion. Marcion of Sinope, or Sinope. Uh, he lived from 85 to 160. Um, in his theology, uh, he rejected uh, the deity described in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, basically, the idea that God the Father was a God of just justice and wrath and totally... Uh, incongruent with the God of the New Testament. That uh, Jesus, the God from which Jesus springs, is a God of love. They, he put a division um, within the Trinity. And so he he separates himself. Now, ultimately, he's going to separate himself from uh, the, the beginning of the Orthodox Church. And he's going to publish the earliest set of a list of canon. He's going to be the first guy who puts together a list of scriptures that are are approved. The, the, the sad thing about that is, well, he denies the entire Old Testament and most of the New. So his canon is not so good. <clears throat> but most of that comes from some of his views. So let's take a look at them. So at the end of, of July, AD 144, a hearing took place before the clergy of the Christian congregations in Rome. Marcion was a wealthy Christian shipowner who had come from Sinope, a, a seaport of Pontus along the Black Sea. He stood before the presbyters to expound his teachings in order to win others to his point of view. 
Um, one of the things he had going for him was he had a lot of money. And he gave a lot of money to the church, which bought him a lot of influence in the church. So those kind of things even took place in those days. Uh, uh, in fact, it says, For some years he had been a member of one of the Roman churches and improved the sincerity of his faith by making relatively large contributions. No doubt he was a respected member of the uh, Christian community, but what he now expounded to the presbyters was so monstrous they were utterly shocked. So, um, the idea of utterly rejecting the Old Testament, that that's all bogus, and holding to a few books in the New Testament is going to create within the church a need to deal with some of these ideas, to get a, a hold on what we know today as essentials of the faith. That makes sense? And so it's kind of going to bring them to that point. Um, so what happens? It ends and they throw them out. So yeah, take your money and go. And it even he was even given back his money, whatever money he gave. Uh, from this time forward, Marcy went on his way, energetically propagating a strange kind of Christianity that quickly took root through large sections of the Roman Empire, and by the end of the second century, was a serious threat to mainstream Christianity. So, really, one of the first uh, um, heresies to really gain a footing uh, springing out of Christianity. He ends up being a disciple of a, uh, a known Gnostic teacher, so he kind of blends some of the concepts of Gnosticism into what's going on. So, the, the main points of his teaching are this, a rejection of the Old Testament, a distinction between the supreme God of goodness and the inferior God of justice, who was the creator and the God of the Jews. He regarded Christ as the messenger of the supreme God, the Old and New Testaments, he argued, cannot be reconciled to each other. So they can't be talking about the same thing. Now some of the questions he's going to raise, I'll bet, are questions we've had at one time or another. Uh, we'll take a look at them. Uh, the code of conduct advocated by Moses was eye for an eye. But Christ set that precept aside. Elisha had children eaten by bears. Remember when the children called them baldy baldy and then the bears came and ate them? Christ said, let the little children come unto me. Joshua stopped the sun in its path in order to slaughter his enemies. But Paul quotes Christ as commanding, let not the sun go down on your anger. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, divorce was permitted and so was polygamy. In the New Testament, neither was allowed. Uh, Moses enforced the Jewish Sabbath and the law, and Christ freed believers from both. So, in this struggle in reconciling these things, that's where where Marcion's heresy sprang forth. So the way he dealt with that was, well, they it's ir, uh, irreconcilable, so I'm going to cut out all the things that disagree, and, and we won't have to deal with it. And uh, probably some of those issues are issues, I'm sure those are issues you get questions of in Sunday school, no? Or questions that we've had ourselves, or questions that that <clears throat> we have to deal with, and and the answer to those questions can't be, well, I'm going to just take a giant uh, magic marker and 
mark off all the things that disagree with what I think. The the right answer would be, how do we reconcile this? That while God is a God of love, He is also a God of justice. While God is a God, a, a, a good and holy God, He is also a God of wrath. And those things aren't like, well, sometimes He acts this way and sometimes... They all exist completely in God at the same time. It's part of the study of the attributes of God that we talked about last time. So we don't get to take God and cut him down to our size. What we need to do is learn to uh, to try to comprehend the transcendent God, right? The God that is holy, other, and... Uh, and sometimes beyond our, our ability, but it, it doesn't stop us from uh, driving through to the answer. Just because we don't have the answer quickly, does that mean there isn't one? Do we have all the information? Let's take an easy one. God told the children of Israel to wipe out all the Canaanites. Why? Why did he say kill every man, woman, and child? We make a lot of assumptions. How is it possible that a child could be an, an infection? How is it possible that a baby could could be bad? How how is any of those things reconcilable? Right? That's that's the argument people would make. People would say of the of the situation with the bears. Oh, come on! Why be so angry about what these kids are saying? We don't have the whole picture. Who has the whole picture? So either that's true or it's not. If it is true, then when we come up against those things that are difficult to comprehend, we can say, uh, God knows more about this than I do. And remember when we began this class, we talked a little bit about what they call the noetic effect of sin, which means sin affects every aspect of our being. Yes? So should we really trust, make our reasoning the ultimate foundation of truth in our life is our reasoning tainted by sin and if it is tainted by sin and the word of God is truth and our foundation of authority in our life then I think we can fall back on those things and say you know I'm gonna put this on the shelf until I understand more about what's going on you know maybe I don't have the whole picture yet and so my reasoning doesn't make sense but I know who God is so any of my reasoning that takes me away from that reality, you know, we imagine, well, there would never be a way I could ever imagine doing those things. But if we know anything about human history, man's able to do in all kinds of things, you know. So most of that is just empty air that, that man talks about. But this is where Marcion's struggle is in reconciling these ideals. So... So when we look at it, what I don't want us to do is come to it and say, oh, well, you know, he's just a, a, a silly guy who couldn't put it together. And he's a guy just like us. Questions just like we have. He just went a different route for answers. You can see the Gnostic influence because in the Gnostics, you had this idea that all matter was evil, Right? And God is good, and God would never create something evil. So you have emanations from God. Um, emanations from God is like uh, maybe viewed as little gods or a force from God that exists outside of God. And when it got far enough away from God, 
so that it's not as good as God is, that's the God who creates matter. Because material, the material world, is all evil. And when you look at Marcion, you go, oh, so he's got this idea where, okay, well, that's that God. That, God the Father is that God. The, the, the God, the Creator, it says in the beginning, God created. This is a distant emanation from the true reality of who God is, which is revealed in Christ. Make sense? What I'm, I'm, because he made the earth, because it's matter. Right, okay. right, because he made the material world, which is, again, none of that's true. This is, this is Gnostic teaching, but it's one of the things that began to infiltrate earlier, and dealing with that infiltration is what brings us to, to issues of canon and solving those issues and, and uh, starting to build what essential doctrine of Christianity is, right? In the early days, everybody was good. Well, relatively. Uh, but it doesn't take very long before you start having little things creeping in that you got to deal with. And, and that's what we see going on with Marcion. Uh, Marcion says, even the Old Testament has contradictions. God commanded there be no work on the Sabbath, yet he told the Israelites to carry the ark around Jericho seven times. Uh, seven days in a row, which means they carried the ark on what day? Sabbath. Sabbath day. There's a problem there. He told uh, them no graven images, but Moses was told to make a graven image of a bronze serpent and affix it to a pole. So Marcion therefore rejected the entire Old Testament. <clears throat> Furthermore, in his opinion, the twelve apostles misunderstood the teachings of Christ. Now that's not too much different from the things today. At least Marcion is, is close enough that you know he's only a couple generations from Jesus. We're, you know, 2,000 years away from Jesus, and we got people like Bart Ehrman saying, well, there's no way Jesus said that. Well, how in the world can you know now? What, how can you say what you know what he did or didn't say? And why would you discount eyewitness account, right? And say, well, the eyewitnesses got it wrong. So you see faulty logic. The eyewitnesses got it wrong. Let me, who wasn't there, tell you what really happened. Again, the concept of Gnosticism was... I have been gifted with secret knowledge. And this secret knowledge means I can know things you don't. There's probably no end of the cults that exist today that started the same way. You can't understand what the Bible says, so you've got to come to me to explain it to you. And I have secret knowledge, that's why I know what it says. You just have to believe what I'm telling you. And we might think, well, I, I would never believe that, but a lot of people will. Cults get big. There's some crazy ones out there. I'm not even talking about normal cults. I'm talking about wackadoo, crazy, you know, every man giving his wife to the leader because he must be the Messiah, so he gets everybody's wife. Who does that? Yeah, well, they did it. So, I think you have some of that same thing going on with this understanding that, you know, the 12 apostles don't have it right. Uh, so, uh, um, so he said, uh, in his opinion, the 12 apostles misunderstood the teaching of Christ and holding him to be the Messiah of the Jewish God falsified his words from that standpoint. So he's going to, he's going to say they're wrong wherever they say he's the son of God. 
Uh, Marcion explains this corruption of the true gospel based on the epistle to the Galatians, in which Paul emphasizes there is only one gospel, namely that which is proclaimed by him, Galatians 1, 8 through 10. The states that false brethren are attempting to turn believers from this gospel, uh, verses 6 through 9, and convinced that among the early apostolic leaders, only Paul understood the significance of Jesus Christ as the messenger of the supreme God. So you see where this is all going, right? So what happens is, and what we always have to be careful of, is when we start lining up scripture that only agrees with our position and drawing giant X's through the ones that don't. Now the scriptures he's drawing giant X's have been functioning in the church up until this time. They've been authoritative in the church, but they disagree with his view of what God's like. You guys see what I'm saying? So, um, Marcion accepted as authoritative the nine epistles sent by Paul to seven churches, as well as the one to Philemon. So, he's going to blend them together. Now, there's 13 epistles of Paul. So, he doesn't like all of Paul. But his foundation is going to come uh, from Paul. As for the Gospels... Uh, that were current among the churches. The only one Marcion felt he could trust was the gospel according to Luke. Uh, we cannot say with certainty why he had confidence in this gospel, but perhaps the reason was he regarded the author Luke as a disciple of Paul, so believed him to be more faithful to, to tradition than the other evangelists. But in any case, this was for Marcion the gospel without identification as to its human author. Uh, a deficiency for which Tertullian castigates Marcion. He had, he had a problem with that. Uh, but even this short two-part canon, compromising the Evangelion, that's the Gospel, and the uh, uh, Apostolicon, that's the writings of the Apostle, uh, needed pruning and editorial adjustment. So what does that mean? So he's going to start marking through verses and taking things out, right? Because, well, no, yeah, Luke is close, but he don't quite got it right. Alright, so he starts marking through. Uh, he starts making uh, some changes. Uh, passages that Marcion could regard only as Judaizing interpolations that had been smuggled in the text by false apostles had to be removed so the authentic text of the Gospel and the Apostle Paul could once again be, be available. Now, there's fault in his reasoning. Do we not see it? Under what authority? By what authority? What he is claiming, what Marcion is claiming, is he has authority over the scripture. That he who wasn't there, not an eyewitness, has some kind of special authority, and that's still the action that some people take coming to the word today. I have special authority. I'm the one who can tell you which parts we leave out. Which things we can mark off. Which things we can take away. So there's a few of the things that, that I have listed in here that he's going to remove to get to the, uh, to the authorized text. Um, so Marcion undertook to expunge everything from the text of Luke and the epistles which echoed or otherwise implied any point of contact with the Old Testament. So anything that referred to the Old Testament, that's gone. Since Jesus, according to Marcion, had only the appearance of being human, again, Gnostic idea, you guys hear it? Mm -hmm. 
He could not have been born of a woman, therefore Marcion omitted most of the first four chapters of Luke. Uh, the birth of John the Baptist, nativity, Jesus' baptism, and temptation with his genealogy, and all reference to Bethlehem and Nazareth. Marcion's gospel began with uh, Luke chapter 3, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, and continued, and uh, then stopped, and continued with chapter 4, verse 31. Better like Christmas. Yeah, a lot of things are gone. <laughs> With God descended into Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Uh, in the last chapters of Luke, the omissions are rather more numerous than the first. The resurrection of Jesus is passed over in silence. As for the epistles, so no Christmas or Easter. Yeah. Uh, Marcion removed whatever he judged were interpolations. So who's making the decision? Marcion. What's he making it based on anything? Any textual issues? Any? No, just his own opinion, right? So he's cutting and pasting. Uh, anything that did not agree with his understanding of what Paul should have written. Thus, Galatians 3.16, uh, 4.6 were deleted because it's a reference to Abraham and his descendants. So that whole section of scripture he cuts out. 2 Thessalonians 1.6-8 because God is not concerned with flaming fire and punishment. So he cut out any, any references to punishment. Now, this is not any different than what guys are doing today. What's Rob Bell doing? Now, he's not taking a Bible and taking a marker to it and cutting things out, but he's telling you it's irrelevant for us today. We don't have to listen to that because God's not a God of justice. Which one's the, Is he the one that said we don't need the Bible at all? Yeah. Uh, Andy Stewart. Andy. Not Andy Stewart. Andy what? Yeah, there's a couple of them. It'll come to me. I want to say Stewart, but that's wrong. He has got a famous dad that preaches. Mm -hmm. 30,000 people come yeah. to So he, he, is, he is moving in that direction. But Rob Bell is fully in that direction. He, he disregards whole sections of Paul. Well, you still have several churches that do that today, right? Um, how do we get to a, a woman pastor? What do you got to get rid of? You got to get rid of Timothy. Now, are there women pastors today? Yes. So, in those churches, they had to draw a magic marker line through the pastoral epistles, right? Because they because they're just saying, nope, that's that doesn't apply anymore, or that's not for us, or whatever gymnastics they do. It is it is them as a denomination saying we have authority over the Bible, right? Or we're going to change how that should be interpreted or whatever. That's on CSN. Is it? Last Thursday night I was coming back from Eden. It was 8.30, I think, when I was driving back. And, yeah, it's on CSN now. Yeah, and it, it, you're going to see more and more of that, right? What is it that Amos said? Every time the children of Israel were getting into trouble, you know, the Lord would, would say there's a famine of the word. A famine of the word? When Josiah brings his revival, what sparks the revival? Men coming back to the Word of God and saying it has authority over our life. You know? And that that we may not always like what the Word of God says. We may not always like the idea that, well, what, what is there something wrong with a woman? She can't be a pastor? No, not at all. But there are roles that God created. 
And those roles were created most, mostly because of man's failure, not because of any issue on the part of women. But the idea that God wants men to be responsible and lead. And man can spend his whole life not leading. He'll still give an account for what he did or what opportunity he did or did not take. So, But the point is, still today we see guys doing this. Same thing Marcion did. Guys are doing this. Guys are are stripping the Bible of its authority. Okay, same same word. Now, <clears throat> let's talk about his influence. Okay, so we see he's cutting and pasting. He builds a canon, the earliest canon. We shouldn't give a lot of credence to that canon. Why? Because it's a canon of a heretic who is cut and pasting the Bible. Chopping up the pieces until it agrees with him. Okay, very much like there are people today who, who would like to do the same things. But what, what did his influence cause? So, uh, the basis of Marcion's edition of the Gospel according to Luke and 10 of the Pauline epistles uh, became known as the Western text, uh, which was, uh, it seems, the most widespread popular text of the New Testament in the 2nd century. So, it gains a lot of popularity. Because it's easy. Yeah. Easy, always going to be more popular, no? Yeah. <laughs> in addition... Uh, to making the deletions of all the involved approval of the Old Testament or the Creator God of the Jews, Marcion modified the text through transpositions and occasional additions in order to restore what he considered must have been the original sense. The subsequent influence of Marcion's text has left its mark here and there on the transmissions of copies of Luke and Paul. Make sense? So later on, we're going to talk about transmission uh, of the text and and textual variants, right? So does it begin? Do we can we begin to understand how on the earth could there be four hundred thousand textual variants? Well, if a guy like Marcion's producing texts, you think they're picking up a text and going, "Did Marcion write this or not?" Or was this? brought down from Marcion or was the next scribe somebody who knew Marcion and and so you have this edition or that thing that begins to creep into the text when we look at it we can begin to understand how does that happen how do those things take place how does that uh, begin to creep into the copies so textual critics differ how many variants can be traced back to Marcion but we are certain at least a few, and there's a few that I list there at the bottom. So what's the result of this heresy? Marcion forced more Orthodox Christians to examine their own presuppositions and to state more clearly what they already believed. What do I mean? They started putting together concepts about why this is not okay, why we don't cut and paste, why we're... And it began a, a movement toward, and we'll see it when we talk about Eusebius in a, in a little while, but it began to move Christians toward a canon of the text. So Marcion moved them towards affirming what books and the whole book, not just <clears throat> pulling two or three chapters out of a book and, and cutting those things off. So Marcion does, leads to that. Um, or the beginning of that in any ways. Now, again, I want to reiterate, was the Bible already functioning as canon at that point? Yeah, it was already functioning. The, the argument that 
that we have in Marcion is he was doing what to it? Cutting. Oh, that can't be. We can't have this no more. We can't have this no more. Uh, this chapter's got to go. That chapter's got to go, right? So, so those are the issues. And, and so the church begins to move towards adopting um, the rule, the rule of faith. Where are we at? What do we believe? How do these things work? Someone went swimming and got hurt, so they put up a sign that said, no swimming, right? Watch out for Marcion. Stay away from these teachings, you know. And you'll see a lot of the early church fathers dealing with uh, Marcion heresies uh, as a result. Because, if really, we don't have any of Marcion's own writings. We just have primarily the guys who wrote about him and what he was teaching. That That's where we're, we extrapolate most of the things that he did. Uh, next guy we want to talk about is Montanism. So Montanism, uh, somewhere in the 150s. So, so close to a similar time. Uh, Montanism is what I would like to call a charismatic movement. Well, I don't know if he considered charismatic or not. I'm definitely not, not enough for the Montanist. So Montanus is a is a kind of extreme uh, charismania kind of the idea. Let's look at it. Um, uh, so Montanism becomes a significant factor in the hardening of the canon of the New Testament um, because you have this movement that is super enthusiastic. Has a lot of the flow of the spirit and a heavy credence on prophecy and a continuing, uh, a continual receiving of the word of God through prophecy of its people. Do you understand why that might be a problem? Let's do it like this. Go to service and the guy stands up and he receives a prophecy and he says, Thus says the Lord, and whatever he says carries the same weight as Scripture. And then somebody else stands up and says, Thus saith the Lord, and whatever they say carries the same weight as Scripture. And and in some instances, they wrote them all down, they kept track of them. Hey, where the the the, the canon is ever growing. You get what I'm saying? The Bible's ever growing because we're receiving prophetic revelation and this prophetic revelation is being established and so the bible is going to eventually it'll be so big it'll fill the whole earth with all the things that god has told us so montanism leads the church in a direction of closing a canon because prophecy that comes like that on the whim of the prophet uh, really can't be validated. It's dangerous. For sure. And the, the idea of, uh, you know, again, when we look at Old Testament prophets, Old Testament prophets just didn't wake up one day, eat breakfast, and go, I'm supposed to be a prophet today. <laughs> and go out and start prophesying. Right? He had a, God visited him. God said, uh, Jeremiah, I've called you from the womb. God said, Isaiah, who's going to go for us? Who's going to go tell the people? Ezekiel has a vision, sees the Lord. There's a, 
there's an event taking place <clears throat> where where their call is specifically from God. And, and the reality is, the Montanists are trying to duplicate that. And with it, duplicating the authority. Um, you just have a small problem in the fact that the authorized text that the that the church was already using had indicated that God finished saying everything that he had to say through his son. So, why would he be giving further revelation? So these are the things they're going to have to nail down. Montanism first appeared according to Epiphanius in the year 156, or if we follow Eusebius in 172. The movement began at Artaban, a village on the borders of Mysia and Phrygia. Here, Montanus, uh, sometimes described as a former priest of Sybil. You guys remember Sybil? No? Multiple personalities? Is, uh, uh, no? Nobody? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, yeah. No, that's, where, that's why they, they called it that, Sybil. The, uh, anyways, he fell into a trance after his conversion and began to speak in tongues. He announced that he was the inspired instrument of a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, promised in John's Gospel. So can you begin to understand why this would be an issue? Now, do, do these kind of things still happen in the church today? Are there churches on TV who are still receiving further revelation from God? It's not new stuff, right? <clears throat> so it, it was it was there in the beginning, and, and, the, and it... Leads the church again to put up signs to say, "Okay, this is this is the orthodox understanding of the church. This is what the apostles passed on to us. This is how we hold fast to sound doctrine, like Paul said to Timothy. Right? Hold fast to the sound doctrine, the things that I taught you. So, if somebody comes along and says, "Hey, now I'm the new move of the Holy Spirit in your life, and I'm gonna, I've, I've got new words, right?" And then we're constantly living on an experience too, yeah? And that experience is ever-changing and cannot be tested. What are you going to test it against? If it's a new word of God, it supersedes the old word, so you don't need the old word, you just need to hear what I'm saying now. Let's, you know, and so there's a real, there's a real draw for that. Associated with Montanus were two women, Prisca, or Priscilla and Maximilla, who being struck by the prophetic afflatus left their husbands and joined themselves to Montanus. So, two women come alongside, like what they see, get divorced, leave their husband, and join him. They become priestesses. Uh, the fundamental conviction of the new prophecy in its earliest form was that heavenly Jerusalem was shortly to descend upon earth and be located at the little Phrygian town of Pepuza. 20 miles northeast of Hierapolis. Here the three of them settled and began to utter prophetic oracles. Their pronouncements were written down, gathered together as sacred documents like the words of the Old Testament prophets or the sayings of Jesus. So, hey, this guy used to be a, a priest uh, worshiping Sybil. He decided he gets saved, whether or not that's real. It seems like he said he just, I think, realizes, hey, I, there's kind of a a new opportunity for me here, and and you have a new thing off and running. Along with their vivid expectation of the near approach of the end of the world, the Montanists also soon developed ascetic traits 
and disciplinary rigorism in the face of growing worldliness in the great church. So you see asceticism. That's like uh, the monks, right? People sitting on poles, spending their lives in caves, um, making their life more difficult as an effort to become more holy or spiritual or set apart or away from uh, the influence of the world. Uh, and then the final feature of the Montanist movement was they wanted to develop a, a democratic church, not a clerical aristocracy. So they want to be ruled by the people, not by the pastor. There shouldn't be what, what would qualify a pastor to be over us. That doesn't make sense. We're, we'll just have a, um, whatever. Uh, we'll, we'll be run by each other. Everyone has a say or a vote or a whatever <coughs> in, the, in the process of functioning as a church. So, uh, the really the only real problem with that is that everywhere Paul sent Timothy, he said appoint elders in the city develop a hierarchy of the church to oversee, that there would be overseers in the church that would uh, be able to provide, what is it in the book of Acts chapter 6, what are they told to choose? We have problems, things going on, things are, are getting carried away, we need more help around here, so he says choose six men full of the Holy Spirit and start putting in the work. And Stephen, the first martyr, comes out of that group, right? A group of men chosen for the Holy Spirit that that were to act as overseers, that were to help with what was going on around the church. So the structure of the church starts in Book of Acts, chapter six, pretty early, and certainly in all of Paul's writings, pointing elders, telling them the qualifications for an elder and how the church should go together. So, so these are the the three areas. You have a continuing revelation coming from God through His prophetic utterance. You have uh, uh, the end of the world. The world is going to end any minute. That's nothing new, right? How long ago was it we had Harold? Was it Harold Camp? They had the signs everywhere, Jesus coming Little back. He, he wrote so many books about Jesus coming back, 88 reasons Six, he's coming back. 23 p.m. on such <clears throat> and such day. He did it twice, didn't he? I think more. I was a horrible mother. I tricked my daughter with that. I was like, no, I'm going. She's like, no! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we have, we still have these, these same tricks going on, right? A lot of times we talk about the reality that the devil don't change his tactics, right? If it worked then, you think it'll work now? Yeah. But if they had questions about it then, you think they got questions about it now? Yep. Same questions. It's nothing new. You know what's the Word of God declares, right? There's nothing new under the sun. So anyhow, this is, this is what's going on. With uh, with the the Monta, the Montanists. So uh, during the the oh the other thing they began to add women into leadership roles. You saw that at the end. Uh, so then uh, during the following decades, the fate of the Montanists was sealed. First, after some vacillation, the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Carthage and the remaining African bishops followed the example of their colleagues and pronounced the Cataphergians, which is what they called themselves, a heretical sect. Once they get called heretical, then 
they're on their own cut out. The church starts to take active uh, um, efforts to counteract their teaching, what they're what they're doing. What is the backlash? You guys ever heard me talk about the pendulum swings? So just think about these things because it's not really any different than church now. So let me ask you, does the Bible teach that the Spirit should function and work within service today? Does the Holy Spirit have a place in the church? Does He still do things? Still heal? Is there still the gift of tongues, prophecy, those things exist or don't exist? So what's a possible backlash of a group that overemphasized all those things? You're not saved unless you have a gift? Well, that's what they said. Well, people are looking for that. Like, But when I talk about backlash, I'm talking about the opposite swing of the pendulum. It takes the focus off the word. Well, sure, that's what it, that's what it did for them. But when, when I say there's a backlash, it means so the church reacts, calls them heretics, and then what are they... What are they Start to restrict. Yeah, let's not have... You get what I'm saying? They start wanting to restrict the the function of the Holy Spirit in service because they're trying to battle with this abuse. Does that make sense to you guys? So you have this restriction. Now, what else were they? They were end times cult, right? So what else might the church try to restrict? Revelation? So they start to have a problem with the book of Revelation because the Montanists use the book of Revelation a lot talking about the end of the world. Start to make sense? So the church starts to say, I don't know about that book now. Now before it was okay, but because we're dealing with this heretic, because somebody went swimming and died, we're going to put up a sign, no swimming. Just start to understand, as we work through history and you hear people say, well, once upon a time the church didn't even like the book of Revelation. And that's it. There's no context to the statement. Why didn't they like it? Well, there was this end time cult that put a heavy influence on the book of Revelation. And so their reaction, and not a total reaction by any stretch of imagination, but the reaction of the church was to start to question whether or not that belongs. Can we understand why that would happen? So, so to me, some of those things begin to make sense. So we have a mistrust of all apocalyptic literature... So it's not just the revelation. What what are what other areas are, are, are apocalyptic? So is Daniel, the Old Testament prophets. You have uh, um, some some parts of uh, Peter's writing, which are going to struggle as well. Second Peter. Oh, I don't know. Second Peter's got some things in there. Uh, uh, so they start to question some of those issues because there was a problem with the Montanists. Um, then they have a denial that it's a couple of the good things that come out of it. Denial that current prophecies hold the same authority as the scripture. Is the gift of prophecy still exist? Yes. Does the office of prophet exist? No. When the apostles died, that's it. There, there is no more a man like an apostle. Now, the Bible says Jesus gave gifts to the church and one of the gifts is apostles well what do you mean jackie there's no apostles anymore okay i mean the gift that god gave to the church to the apostles that delivered the word of god did their job and that's over but the word apostle means to be sent out so every missionary is an apostle Mm -hmm. 
Do you understand? So the, there's the concept of the official office of the man, the men that God used to give us to deliver the word of God to the church. That job's done. There's no new scriptures coming. The scriptures he gave us, he finished. Right? That was the whole to me that was a big point to the beginning of the book of Hebrews, which by the way, until the time of Marcion was strictly considered Pauline. And bound together with all the rest of his epistles. So most people said he had 14. And the reason he did that is we can even see still today that the writer of the writing of Hebrews is definitely Pauline thought. The idea of the just shall live by faith appears in three Pauline books. Well, if you include Hebrews. Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. That whole system that you see in those books all comes together. So it's it's just screams, at least his influence. So, but you have the, this denial. There are no prophetic offices today. Does the Holy Spirit give give utterance? Can someone speak a word of prophecy and say, you know, the Lord is telling us that the, the church needs to move here or buy this or do this? Absolutely he can. Absolutely that can happen, but that's not scripture. Right. So I've, I've shared before from the pulpit, it makes me nervous every time somebody says the words, thus saith the Lord. Makes me nervous. That you are taking, you better not be wrong. <laughs> right? Can you imagine the accountability that will be one day standing before the creator of the world, having presumed that God had said something, but he didn't say it? And we do it all the time, don't we? Oh, the Lord told me. There's a few times in my life I'm I'm pretty I'm I'm confident enough to say it, and I'll stand on the carpet one day. But boy, I don't say it much. And I tell people all the time: You come into my office wanting to know what to do, and you say this phrase: "The Lord told me," I'm done telling you what to do. <laughs> yeah. I am not going to say, "Well, don't do what God told you." <laughs> that seems like a bad way to start a conversation. No. So, so I had, and since I've been in Buell, I've had that happen probably at least twice, maybe three times. And every time, you know, there has been a, a, a certain group of calamities that has followed said statement. <laughs> but once you say that to me, then who am I to say, that's not what God told you? You, you just, you, you dropped a nuke, maybe a little bit early. Maybe what we should have did is said, mm, I think I, I'm being called in this direction. And would you confirm my calling or not? But once you say, thus saith the Lord, you shalt, ooh, hands off, brother. Better do what God said. And I'll know, because I'll just watch. And it won't be very long before the flames or the, the victory, right? One or the other. Will tell me, did the Lord say? So I, I try to be very careful of those things. Does God speak prophetically? Absolutely. Have people prophesied into my life? Absolutely they have. And I always know it's a prophecy from God if it happens. If it don't happen, it wasn't a prophecy from God, right? But it's not scripture. And it will and I can always judge it because it will always line up with scripture. Does that make sense? So there's not, so there's, that's part of what the church is establishing 
uh, when they, when the church deals with a Montanist. So these two come out of this first period, okay? They're, I'm not saying these are the only ones. I'm just saying these two kind of have a profound effect on the Bible. One, getting the people to start to want to, to develop a canon, a list that's not all cut and chopped. And the other, beginning the church to say, it's a closed list. There's not more things being added. Right? Could you under, could you believe if we went from then till now, and every utterance or prophecy someone spoke was treated as scripture? What would we have to? You wouldn't be able to carry it. Yeah, it and you'd have a mess. You because re- none of us really believe all those guys were speaking for the Lord, do we? At least I don't. So, then everybody who's this is like me. Everybody who's come in this office and said, "Thus saith the Lord" to me, I'm not writing those things down and saying, "Oh, I'm gonna add this to my Bible." Because this is a new revelation from God. Right? And so those things are being developed through this through this issue. So <clears throat> the extreme anti montanists now you have an extreme kickback, okay? This is what I'm talking about. The extreme guys, they start to deny the authorship of, of Paul for Hebrews. They start to deny the gospel of John, not because there's a problem with John, but because John also wrote what? Revelation and Revelation is apocalyptic, so we're going to stay away from anything that anybody ever touched that, that these crazy guys used. You see how that starts to affect? Um, and again, the denials are based solely on the fact that the Montanists used it. Because they use these things, we're staying away from it. Now, why is this important? Because sometimes people will get into school and they'll say, oh, you know what? The. the you know, the Bible is crazy. It was always, our people were arguing over stuff all the time. Well, why were they arguing over it? They didn't start arguing over it. They, they started having some crazy folks come. <clears throat> and then we can see this, this uh, <clears throat> providence of God establishing hard lines for the beginning, middle, and ending of canon. And the church works its way through all that. All the church does is confirm what God has done already in his word, what was accomplished when the apostles put down their pen. Does that make sense? So, <clears throat> that's what's that's what's happened. To sum up the influence of the Montanist movement uh, on the conception of the canon was the opposite of Marcion. Uh, whereas the latter spurred the church to recognize the breadth and written corpus of authoritative writings, The insistence of the former on the continuous gift of inspiration and prophecy influenced the church to emphasize the final authority of the apostolic writings. So they start to. So what I'm saying is, one, we're 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 starting to look at the the breadth of canon, and the other is we're starting to make sure that we understand the canon's close. Like, how many people did these people reach? Like, I mean, obviously it was a big amount. Like, sure, thousands. They they go over uh, from one fifty to two o something fifty. So fifty years of influence by the Montanists, and well, just think about it today. How many people, if we if we go on Stanley, how many people? Sorry, that was totally <laughs> random. <laughs> <laughs> That was the guy's last name. Um, um, But how many people follow, obviously, totally crazy people on TV? Yeah. Who who are saying the same kind of things the Montanists did, only not to the same extent, you know, really. 
they don't believe they're, but they do believe they're speaking for God. And, you know, they say the crazy things like, you know, send me a hundred bucks and God's going to give you 10,000. And and how many people do it? Like how (laughs) huge the Mormon church is. Sure. You know what I mean? And they use that of of profit. Absolutely big. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say yes. It was big. Yeah. And I would say both of them, both of these are just uh, um, snippet. Because if you realize what what did the devil initially try to do with the church? How did he try to extinguish the flame? Well, after Jesus, the ascension, he's gone, the church is beginning. What's his first method of attack? Persecution. Persecution. What did it do? Spread the word, the church is growing. What's the second form of attack? Join. Now I can start to work from the inside. What do I propagate from the inside? False teaching. False teaching leads people astray. People go astray. I build a big group. Now I've got this big group that is totally way out in left field and beginning to affect the the movement of the church. And the people who are watching, who are not involved from the outside, look and say, man, look at all screwed up all these people are. Right? Or they look at it because it's so self-serving. They look at how blessed they are because it's all wealth. You know what I mean? Like uh-huh. They look at it that way too. Like, oh, their life's easy. Like, <laughs> I don't know. And you, But what you have it, both ways, it's going to slow the growth yeah. of the church. Yeah. The true church is, it, so, so, and I think he still does that today. I think there are areas in the world where persecution works. Currently, ISIS chopping off the head of every Christian in a town works pretty good. When there's no Christians, you wouldn't believe how many people become Muslim. Yeah. Right? When there's no salt, no light. Now, will it, will that effect be maintained? Maybe not. But I think there are times when persecution works. And there are other times where I think persecution would be great if it would come to the U.S. Because it would fan flames like you can't imagine. All you got to do is tell an American no. You can't do that. And boy, they want to fight to the death. Right? Go ahead, persecute me. I dare you. But what does he do here? He joins a church where you have all kinds of weird heretical teachings and ideas that begin to creep up. And the effectiveness of the church is is withdrawn. And now you have the church fighting amongst itself because you have heretical leaders standing up and saying, that's not true. No, the Bible's not true no more. We just need to get away from this. And and so, so the people on the outside see that too. And that's so right. then they can't, they don't want to join. And to the people from the outside, we're all the same. Yeah. They don't know the difference yeah. between. Yeah. Right? So, it, it helps us understand the tactics of the enemy. And it was comforting, I don't know if comforting is the right word, but it was good for me to see it's not new. Yeah. So here we are. Right? First couple generations after the apostles. Same stuff. Right? Same things going on. Same, you know, six million Christians are killed, but Constantine becomes a Christian and all of a sudden, boy, all kind of problems start to creep in the church. We get to the Middle Ages and we're going to get crazy because Middle Ages you got indulgences, you got the church getting power, and when the church gets power, what happens to it? Same thing happens to men who get power. Corrupt. Right? And that corruption starts to seep in. So, you know, what what the devil wanted, he got. And Not that God doesn't get what he wants as well, but 
<laughs> as those things are all going on, God is establishing providentially. So by providentially, I mean God is working out the circumstances to get to us the same Bible that's on your lap that was on theirs. And we're going to see it. Okay, next guy I want to talk about is not a heretic. He's a historian. His name is Eusebius. And his special contribution is not his perfection in doctrine or any of that. It's going to be his history of the church. What do I mean? Eusebius starts to keep track of who's teaching what, who is using what, what things are happening. And really, by the time we get to the end of Eusebius' time, which is late 200s, you're going to have the same New Testament you have now. That you can see in his notes as he's writing down what's going on. What's happening historically. Who's using what. You know, with a couple of, of minor issues, like what we're describing was, was begun from this other heresy, but for the most part you're going to have the same thing you have in your lap at the time of Eusebius. And that's only going to become more and more refined. Just so you know, the only time, I, and I'll check my numbers, but I think it's 1576 when we have the first official list of a canon in the church. So it's the division of East and West, whenever that happens. I might be a little late, but it seems like it was in the 15s. The, um, so what do I mean? The division of... Uh, the, well, actually, have division of East and West that has already occurred, but you have the Eastern Orthodox and the <clears throat> Roman Catholic, and official canons start to get released. And then at the Reformation, it happens again. Official canons get released. But what I want us to see is... Because that's the first official list, look at what historically was being used. What were people using? The books that the apostles wrote. Same ones we have. Same ones that we're looking at. And the people that are there so close to the eyewitnesses. Yeah. 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 So you have all this eyewitness account. Here it is. Here's the Bible. Here's what's going on. And like I said, as problems arise, they start putting up signs. Okay? No swimming. What does this sign mean? This sign means... Here are these, these are the books we're using. These are the things, this is how we're dealing with this heresy. Now, they might not mention a different book, but later on another heresy comes up, what happens? They, now they mention that book because they are using that to deal with that heresy. Does that make sense? <clears throat> and ultimately what I want to get us to is the concept that the Word of God is, is self-authenticating. It has power, period. And because it does, it holds its authority. And it comes to us complete when it comes to us the same way it was to them. And we can see it historically, those events happening. So, <clears throat> Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, he's been mentioned, we looked at some of his quotes earlier, uh, the last time we were together. His ecclesiastical history gives us access to a host of sources and traditions otherwise long since lost. The father of church history had at his disposal the library at Caesarea, which Origen built up, after he'd been forced to leave uh, Alexandria, take up residence in Palestine. Pamphilius, an enthusiastic adherent of origin, and sought out and added many volumes to the library. These are all writings of the apostles, early church fathers being kept in this library that he has access to, that he uses for his uh, history of the church. 
the Ecclesiasticus, the history of the church. So, um, after Pamphilius died, uh, Eusebius becomes, uh, takes his place as his successor. Uh, Pamphilius dies as a martyr in the Diocletian persecution. So, early on in Rome. Uh, born in 260, Eusebius becomes the bishop of Caesarea before 315, died about 340. So we're entering in the 4th century now. Okay, He wrote his ecclesiastical history in sections and issued it with revisions and additions several times during the first quarter of the 4th century. What renders Eusebius' work most valuable to us is the marked attention that he directed towards all that concerns the history of the Bible. He had read a prodigious number of authors. All the books he added is uh, in the library. And in the extracts that he gives us from their writings, he never fails to note the, the use they made of Scripture. Who was using what books? How often did they use it? What, who was teaching from where? When everything that came through to him, he, he puts these things together. Uh, the list of books they quote in passing or, or fully discuss. The judgments they pronounce on them. If somebody said, this is bad, he wrote it down. If somebody else was teaching, this is good. He's keeping track of all these things. Uh, if one asks, what was the reason for this concern in registering numerous individual testimonies concerning the scriptures? The answer certainly must point to Eusebius' search for certainty, as well as to the absence of any official declaration having an absolute value, such as the canon by synod, or the collective agreement amongst the churches or bishops. So they still don't have a list. It's still what the church is using, how the church is functioning, by what the apostles wrote. And since that, Eusebius is putting together a list of who's doing what, who's using what, how is it coming together. Uh... Of these, there's not a trace in the long series of literary notices so conscientiously amassed by the historian. <clears throat> but when all is done, the most that Eusebius can register is uncertainty so great that he seems to get confused when making a statement about it. This may be seen from an analysis of the summary he gives. We're going to look at that summary in a minute. In the absence of any official list of the canonical writings in the New Testament, Eusebius finds it simplest to count the votes of his witnesses and by this means classify <clears throat> all the apostolic or pretended apostolic writings into three categories. Here they are. Those, first category, those on whose authority and authenticity all the churches and all the authors he consulted were agreed upon. The books of the first category he called Homo Lugomena, uh, Lugomena which... Uh, that is, books that were universally acknowledged. These are 22 in number. How many is in your New Testament? Anybody know? 27. 27. So at his time, they had 22 that they were not even arguing about. Hmm. That's pretty good. That's, that's... And I, I imagine I could have got by. I know guys in the... Amazon Rainforest, who got by with one book for years while they were passing books back and forth of the Bible to be able to teach from. So, so they had uh, 22. Here they are. Uh, they had the Holy Quartornion. I don't even know how to say that. 
which means add the Gospels. I want to emphasize again, never was there a list ever that had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and something else. It was always Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four Gospels are always listed together. There's not. There's never a time where it was, you know, Matthew, Thomas, Bartholomew, and somebody else. Oh, it was always Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was not ever nobody else. Those are the four Gospels from the beginning. And maybe you're going to get there, but didn't like the <coughs> Gospel of Timothy, the Gospel of Bartholomew, did those come out like 5th, 6th century? Yeah, okay. they're late. They're late. They become uh, what's known as pseudopographia, which means false writings, but that's probably uh, it, uh, really what it means is the, the author t- to whom they're attributed didn't write them. Oh, okay. You, you could, you, but the problem with the title, with seeing it as just false writing, it, it's the same category. Like if you wrote a biography about somebody, let's say you wrote something about Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. that would be a pseudopographia because Abraham Lincoln didn't write it, you did. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's bad. Okay. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. You could have done a good job on Abraham Lincoln. Make sense? <clears throat> so, sometimes when we just say false writing it, we think they're all bad. They're not all bad, but they're they're not written by the guy whose name's on the front. <clears throat> anyway, so so what do we got? We got the <clears throat> four Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, the Pauline Epistles, all of them, First uh, Peter and First John. Uh, in addition to these, he says they should be. Now here's where he he's, he sounds confusing. We're gonna see him talk about this twice. Uh, the Apocalypse of John, there's different opinions, uh, should it be in, shouldn't it be in, I'm going to leave it in. That's what he said. And then later on, in the doubtful ones, he's going to say that again and put it in doubtful. So he puts it in two categories. Two categories. Hmm. But remember, I told you why. What was the kickback? <clears throat> the kickback was, man, there's all these cults that sprung out of that uh, apocalyptic cult, we're not sure we want it. That's where I think a lot of the kickback comes back from for Eusebius. <clears throat> then we have these, which the second category, these which witnesses agree in rejecting. So these were all agreed to be rejected. Alright, so these are all bad. Uh, which includes the Acts of Paul, Shepherd of Hermas, Apocalypse of Peter, Epistle of Barnabas, Teachings of the Apostles, the Gospel according to the Hebrews, to these he adds, inconsistent, inconsistently, the Apocalypse of John. Uh, it shouldn't be there, shouldn't be there, shouldn't be there, shouldn't be there. But these are all ones that guys were saying, nope, these aren't in. So like I said, these consistent. So now, 2,000 years later, when somebody says, well, why didn't they put the Acts of Paul? Well, they found it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, because it was universally agreed upon, that wasn't it. Now, just because it's not scripture, has it no value? Okay, what value does it have, even if it's not scripture? History. Yeah, historical value, right? So, so to qualify something as not scripture is not the same thing to say it has no value. Right. So when you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, you say, well, if it's not scripture, why did they keep it? Well, it was good. It still had good information in it. I mean, for crying out loud, I can point to two quotes in Peter and Jude that come from a pseudopographical quotation that are in the Bible, that are scripture. They both quote from the book of Enoch. Right? 
They quote from the book of Enoch, and you say, well, how come the book of Enoch is not scripture? I said, well, because the book of Enoch isn't. But apparently those two parts are. I don't have a problem with that. Right? God can pick the parts out, and when he puts the parts in, there are parts that go. He is the one who has authority, right, over. So, <clears throat> anyways, those are the rejected, and then the third category. An intermediate class regarding those upon which everyone is divided. Okay, here's the divided ones. They're the third category. That means people are not sure. Some people use them, some people don't. In this category, you have James, Jude, Second Peter, Second and Third John. There's your five that are not that, that struggle for <clears throat> acceptance um, for a variety of different reasons, but. Um, and by the time of Eusebius, again, now we're, we're fourth century, we're, we're getting further removed, but things are getting more refined. Why? Because people are getting hurt swimming in the water, so they're starting to put up signs. And those signs start to harden into the canon that we have. Next time you'll have a, a Middle Ages, you got a hard canon set. Early, actually, early, I'm by the 500s. You have the uh, same 27 books. So that's the next step after Eusebius. <clears throat> you get the same 27. And the, again, the issue is not there's a bunch of groups fighting over what should go in the Bible. That's not what's happening. What's happening? They're dealing with heresies. And when they deal with a heresy, they, they fall back on what the church has been using as authoritative. And as they continue to do that, they're going to end up with 27 books. And the New Testament is going to be finished. What's the big deal with Hebrews? Like, I just always assume it's in the Bible, so it's in the Bible. But just because they don't know the author, yeah. that was the biggest That was the problem. And when did, they, when did they start to drop Paul as the author? Yeah. They started to drop Paul as the author when Marcion started to oh. take <clears throat> Paul's writings and, and butcher them and pick them apart. And so what was the kickback? Well... This doesn't officially say Paul, so we're just not gonna we're gonna we're gonna start questioning it. But the book of Hebrews is is probably the most beautiful yeah, I was gonna of say, all. It's really awesome. The the book of Hebrews has the least amount of textual problems of every book in the Bible. I'm glad it it is the most perfect. And <laughs> and the reality is it belongs there. And it yeah. is definitely Pauline. And like I said, the early generations of the church didn't have a problem with it. Yeah. And if you if you realize, whoever wrote it initially, the church probably knew. But they, he just didn't sign his name on it. He didn't write it into the title. So, you know, the next generation says, hey, who wrote this one? His name's not in here. And they're like, oh, I don't remember. But we've been using it for... So the name falls off the book and, and, and then... 300 years later, people complain, oh, now we don't have a name, I don't know if we want this. <laughs> but, when they look at the, but when they look at the message, it's not hard. Mm -hmm. And like I said, the codexes that we have found of Paul's epistles have Hebrews right in the middle of it. So, most, I, I would say most of the ancient world considered it Pauline. Now, maybe Barnabas wrote it, maybe a friend of Paul, maybe Apollo, maybe... Maybe Priscilla or Aquila. Who knows? Anybody could have. But but the, but the words 
that they're writing are coming out of Paul's lips. That's Paul's message. That's Paul's teaching. That's Paul's doctrine that's flowing out of it. And who wrote it? Because a lot of people use secretaries, just like we use today. Some guy must sit down and say, "I want take a dictation for me. Write a letter. And I can't I even tell you how many times I've said to Danielle, Danielle, write a letter and I'll sign it about this. Because I don't want to write this, this letter. And there have been other times i said, write something, but make sure it's this. And I'll put seven points or whatever, put that down. And so it was the same way. Paul would say, uh, Timothy, take note. We need to send a letter to the Ephesians. Ready? Uh, and then he starts talking and Timothy starts writing. Or, or whoever mm-hmm. his amanuensis is, you know, which is simply his secretary. So when guys look at it and they go, well, the penmanship is different. Well, okay. You realize 5,000 people copied that, right? <laughs> so, you know, there was a period of time, you know, toward the, toward the, uh, in the middle of the 200s, probably during the Montanist period when they're dealing with that heresy, where owning the scripture was capital offense, they kill you for it. So it's not like you sit outside in the sun with the scriptures all laid out and a you know nice comfortable place to write. No, you're down in a cellar somewhere with a candle. You go to one of the cool things about going to the church in Nativity. We didn't get to do this time. They have Jerome's room. Jerome, who wrote, who was wrote uh, uh, scripture the Latin Vulgate put together by Jerome and they have the room where he did it and you go in that room and you just can look around and say what was it like to be Jerome here in this place in the church in the nativity writing out scripture you know writing making a copy cha- uh, translating it into into Latin so just some of that's cool but we don't you know so all those things are so when you come to a book and you say well the his style is different in this one than it is in that one. Well, yeah, it wasn't wrote by a computer. It doesn't. My computer gives me grammar, punctuations, and tells me where the comma is supposed to go. And and uh, but if I don't have that, I don't really care Not about grammar. In the world. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. just is going to go up. And you know, so so I think it depends on who's the guy penning it. Mm-hmm. Paul's famous for never taking a breath when he talks. You know, what would it be like if you had to transcribe my message on a Sunday? If you just had to write, you got it ready, go. Write every word. On your mark, set, go. I can't even look back at my notes half the time. And so you're, <laughs> when you, I mean, then you realize, well, that was not the easiest job, right? To, mm-hmm. to copy those things down. So, yeah, there that can be a part of it. The, but the point is, God in His providence delivered us the message He, yeah. God, wants us to have. We have what we what, what God intended to give us. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will pass away. I'll get it all to you. So if he didn't, throw it all away and go to do something else. But if he did, then we should treat it as authoritative. Does that make sense? Yeah. Any questions? Comments? What was that jar? Thing? It was like six, six foot tall jar they found in the desert. didn't have any... The recent one? No, it was in the. It was a while ago. I'm trying to remember. I was reading about it. But recent, like in our lifetime, or no. before we were born? Before we were born. Okay. And then it didn't have any 
uh, scrolls or anything in it, but it had leather-bound books. There was like 52 leather-bound oh, yeah. manuals in this thing. Yeah. I can't remember what they were about. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I don't know. I want to say they were like notes or something like that. Or like this, like history. Like Definitely could be. I mean, we found all these things. They had libraries. I was in Ephesus. Yeah. Ephesus had a library. You know, the Ephesus that we read about? Mm -hmm. It was it's not so archaic that they didn't have a place where they put their books or they kept their writings. Well, they didn't bind them up. They didn't take care of them, you know? It sounded like this. If I, I wish I could remember what they were about, but it was a library or something. Yeah, like and the, the best one that they found so far to date is Alexandria. That's why the the majority of old copies of scripture that we have come from Alexandria. It was a big library they dug up and and they found you know scrolls in people's collections. You know the first guy who came across the Dead Sea Scrolls took a scroll and sold it and ended up in England. Yep. Until Israel's like, hey. That's Isaiah. You don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> that belongs to us. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So they, so you know, things like that happen. I know that in in some of the uh, monasteries, they would find scriptures that the monks were using to translate to Latin. You know, that were, I think the Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus are both found in a monastery, which are which probably, um, oh, who was I just reading about today? Uh, come on, Jackie, who was it? Probably have their root in uh, in Eusebius's uh, concepts because they're pretty much complete. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are complete copies of the Bible, mm. not a stamp size thing the whole Bible. So, and there, you know, somebody's digging through. You go to some monasteries in <clears throat> Israel and nobody's visited these monks in a hundred years except other monks. Mm. And you look in there, if I remember right, the guy was just looking in among their writings and in a little, coiled up in a, in a little jar was, you know, Sinaiticus or whatever. And they're like, oh, Whoa! What are you guys doing with this? So, important important finds that they have. So, just, I guess part of what I want you guys to be able to see is that God's working supernaturally in very natural ways to bring us through His providence, the Word. And it functioned authoritative from day one, and is delivered to us through God's providence in the same way. Well, it's really helpful that the, like... To be able to know about the heresies, because that's what a lot of people do when they're questioning you about the Bible. Why did they do it this way? Now, you know, we kind of have 